Welcome to the Internet Advisor Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Foster Brown. Along with my co-host, Gary Baker, and our team of experts, we've been helping people like you since 1998 with your computer problems, introducing you to valuable resources, and promoting tech enterprise throughout Michigan. The Internet Advisor is a two-hour podcast recorded every week at the studios of historic WJR Radio in Detroit. Both hours of the show are available each week on this podcast and are streamed to our affiliates across the state of Michigan. And now, here are your hosts with this week's Internet Advisor. Welcome to the Internet Advisor, your place for answers to your computer questions since 1998, with your co-hosts Gary Baker and Foster Brown and their team of tech experts. The door is always open at internetadvisor.net, on Facebook and through Twitter. But right now it's time to get you in touch with your helpful hosts on this week's edition of Internet Advisor. Welcome to the Internet Advisor, our second broadcast of this anniversary month. We're celebrating 20 years on the air, and boy, have we got a group of people here. We're going to be talking about the Falcon Super Heavy launch that went off. Uh, I hope you got to see it. If you didn't, we'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about something landing on the Earth, meteors. And we're going to check in and find out from Cast about the next big thing, IOTM. All that in two hours of our show. It's so good to have you with us here on the Internet Advisor, our one of two. And we have got a marvelous podcast for you today. It's titled Falcon Super Heavy Soars and IOTM is the next big thing. We're also going to be talking about some pieces of the sky that have fallen to Earth and uh, have increased in value. That's coming up in the second hour of our show. So good to have you here with us, and we have quite a crew that we have assembled for the program. Of course, Mr. Gary Baker is down in uh, on the Shared Adventure in Florida. Gary, good to have you aboard, or for us to be aboard with you. I'm uh, happy to be here, and you know we have somebody else that's sharing the adventure this week with me, and that's Mike Brennan is down here. That's right, Mike. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for asking, Foss. Has, has he got you swabbing the decks or anything like that yet? Well, that was the issue. We came on board, we had to take our shoes off, and he handed us a mop. So what's up with that? You know, so. <laughs> well, we'll be talking with you throughout the program, but especially with our MI Tech News uh, segment near the end of this hour. But it's good to hear you down there. Enjoy. Have you been on, you just on vacation right now, Mike? Working vacation. Yeah, I'm staying with a good friend, Dennis Uzenis from Warren, Michigan. Shout out, Dennis. Give us a quick shout out. Go Warren! <laughs> okay, that was Dennis. And so I've been staying with him up in Wellington, getting all my work done during the week. But I just 1,400 miles further south, where it's like 80 degrees, I think, right now. Oh, man. You've like been about... 12 inches less yes, now. Yes, yes, so. definitely. Roy, I can speak for Royal Oak. Yes, you have. <laughs> well, let's introduce some of the other people who were involved here. We've got Mr. Ed Rudell, of course, who is, by the way, doing double duty today as our uh, producer as well, engineer. Buttons, I press the buttons. He does. And next to him, in uh, the other seat of our regular hosts, is Mr. Caston Thomas. Good to have you here. I came for the anniversary cake. Oh, my. It's virtual today, unfortunately. 
Maybe there's some pieces left over. We had two cakes. <laughs> it was good cake. It was. It was very good. Well, we and, better have more cake next week. All right. Definitely. <laughs> if we're going to make this a whole anniversary month, maybe cupcakes. Uh, also with us in studio, I'm delighted to see him, is Richard Steen. How you doing, Rich? Hey, Foster. It's great to be here and great not to be talking about cybersecurity for That's right. We, you know, you have this question sometimes to ask, what do you know? Are you a rocket scientist? And you are indeed. You got your uh, bachelor's from the University of Michigan in That's rocket right. engineering. That's right. Were you planning on you know, like going to NASA and working? Yeah, like completely. But by 1982, the space shuttle had been you know completed and yeah. launched. As a matter of fact, that year I went to see the launch, and uh, everything else out there was missiles, and I wasn't really interested in working on ICBMs. So yeah. I went into automotive industry. That's it. <laughs> that's fascinating. Now we're going to be talking shortly with your brother Patrick, yep. uh, who is uh, based in uh, um, Madison, Wisconsin, near the University of Wisconsin, and he has a small patent firm there. But he also had some patents on some um, of re- uh, the modules. Yeah, re- no, he actually has a patent on a launch trajectory. Ah, okay. And uh, and he's been involved in the entrepreneurial, you know, free market. Right, right, business. So he right. knows, knows a lot of the history. And that is what we're going to be examining today, looking at Elon Musk and what he's done and uh, the business aspect of that with, you know, Jeff Bezos kind of being in a race together. Anyway, uh, Gary, I I didn't have a chance before the program to check this with you, but do you have a tech slice for us for uh, today? Well, I was going to talk about a 17,000 mile an hour Tesla. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, even at that speed, you know, there's no, not much chance of running into another car. <laughs> so, yeah, you don't have to worry about that problem. Oh, my. That was something that, uh, just taking a poll here, uh, did you see the launch, Gary? Um, I didn't see it. I was actually had to work. Oh, well, that's, I mean, that's understandable. Mike, how about you? Uh, I, I watched it on tape replay, but I did not see it live. But okay. I did see the uh, the two booster rockets come and land oh. side by side. But that was pretty oh. remarkable. That I was just standing up at the time and just looking at. I I watched the whole thing on my computer, and uh, I was just I was just yelling, "Holy mackerel!" I used another word, but yeah. you know, just yelling at it at the TV was because it came down like simultaneously. I thought it was maybe like staged, but it was. Boom. Yeah, it almost looked like it was computer generated. Yeah, it was yeah. so precise. It was incredible. Unfortunately, the same thing didn't happen with the main rocket. <laughs> that one hit the boat or the uh, the um, landing platform. Landing drone at like 200 kilometers an hour. Because That's not good. No, three of the four booster rockets didn't fire. Or uh, they're not the booster. But re-entry? The, uh, re-entry rockets, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that little one that was left... Couldn't handle it, and it splattered, unfortunately. So that was like the only casualty so far we know of in that. We can talk more about that, but we're going to be discussing that uh, coming up a little bit on the show. And um, we also have a conversation coming up. With the, remember the fellow that uh, came in and talked to us about um, the uh, Christie's and the auction of the meteorites? That came down on... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And they came down yeah, on the lakes. came down on the lakes. Yeah, near Hamburg. Hamburg. Yep. He's coming back at the beginning of the second hour. Daryl Pitt will be coming back. He's got some exciting news about what's going on with those uh, pieces of uh, heaven that fell to earth. And uh, we'll talk more about that. But in the second hour also, Kasten, we're going to 
Tap, you were to talk about, oh, he's going to talk about some help calls he gave, but also uh, you talk with you about uh, the Internet of Things Medical. Brand new field opening up. It's very, very important. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick pause here. When we come back after that, we're going to start diving into talking about Elon Musk's launch of the Falcon Super Heavy and its implications for space exploration for our country. Back with that in just a moment of the Internet Advisor. I'm going to lay odds that, uh, given our audience, there were many of you who, like I, in 1965, watched Spellbound as man stepped on the moon for the first time. And you may have, like I, for the earlier part of the 60s, followed the launch of the various vehicles that we put into space with bated breath. And um, you might then have also joined me on Tuesday, on your computer perhaps, watching the launch of something that is, uh, I think, going to be rivaling that experience that we had in the 60s. We're going to talk about that right now. Let me introduce the people in our our panel discussion here right now, along with the guys in studio, Ed and Caston and Gary down in Florida. Uh, we've got uh, Richard Steiner with us. Normally talk about cybersecurity, but he's a rocket scientist, I found out. <laughs> yeah, and I know my dates. So the landing on the moon was in 1969. So the, was it 69? I'm sorry. Because I remember it very well, and I was 10 years old. So Yeah, and ah. I, I was only uh Five years old when it happened because I was born in '64. There's no way I could have remembered it when '65. <laughs> so '69, I stand corrected. All right, see, it was Neil Armstrong, right? Correct. Who jumped off? Uh, he hopped off and onto the moon. And and the commentators are saying we don't know if he's going to sink in or what's going to happen to him. But he landed, had a soft landing there. And then what was the great statement that he made? One, one, one small step for one. Small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. That was it. Just incredibly powerful words. And um, I think he just, did he just die recently, I think? Yeah. Neil Armstrong? Or, yeah. I think he did. Um, But in any case, uh, for me, there was an interesting parallel there of watching that. I I happened to be, uh, in 1969, I was doing some uh, summer work, uh, internship, at a parish in uh, uh, Panama City, in the, in the canal area there. I was actually in Panama, not in the canal zone. And uh, we watched it on TV. And it was funny because we were watching and listening to the Spanish commentary, but behind the Spanish commentary was the English commentary going on. So we could le- listen in either language to what was being said and going on there. And so in the Spanish version, did the uh, announcer, when he landed on the moon, say... Go <laughs> or moon, <laughs> Luna. <laughs> that would have been it. That would have been what they well, said. Well, what made this launch of the Falcon Heavy so uh, spectacular is in the internet age. People are able to watch mm-hmm. it on YouTube. People send each other gifts of it, and the, oh, it, that's what just makes it that much more spectacular. I think. Patrick, um, I'm just curious. Patrick Steenen is also with us. I introduced him before as a patent lawyer trained in as a mining engineer, but certainly uh, had lifted his eyes to the skies. I worked for NASA for a number of years, right, Patrick? Uh, actually, Lockheed. Uh, ah, okay. No, Lockheed Martin. Okay. I was under contract to uh, NASA? Uh, sometimes, but uh, mainly worked on the uh, um, submarine ballistic missile. 
system, mm-hmm. and then uh, then I went to advanced concepts where we did do things for NASA. Yeah. Then you also, I, I see that you had a, a patent that uh, you got for a two-stage launch vehicle and launch trajectory method. So you moved, <laughs> it seems, moved up quite a bit in the, uh, um, you know, in, in involvement in uh, the rockets and in the launch vehicles themselves. Uh, well, to what degree did, was, did, was that? Well, before I uh, worked for Lockheed, I worked for a startup in uh, uh, 1981, um, two and uh, parts of three, and then I uh, start, tried to start my own company um, mm. with a uh, pressure-fed uh, two-stage vehicle. And then I went to work for Lockheed, and then... Um, um, so I worked with Max Hunter, who was famous for getting the DCX um, uh, funded. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, went back to the ballistic missile system, and they were going to use old missiles to uh, to build an orbital system, sort of competitive mm-hmm. with uh, orbital sciences at the time. Mm-hmm. And then what was this two-stage launch vehicle and launch trajectory method that you patented? So the um, looking for the cheapest way uh-huh. to build a launch vehicle that's totally reusable. Uh-huh. And um, so the concept is that you just launch the first stage straight up, and then um, you launch so it comes right back down, which mm-hmm. is similar to what SpaceX is doing now. Yes, only yes. They have, um, you know, they have about uh, 14,000 feet per second capability on the first stage. But they, if they don't need all their payload, they um, they return to the launch site, but uses up a lot of uh, propellant before they get there, and then they land. Mm-hmm. But they get uh, some extra downrange velocity. Um, but the idea is that just going up straight up and straight down makes the first stage very recoverable, as mm. Elon has, has shown. Mm-hmm. And then the upper stage, I worked with... Um, uh, Gary Hudson, who was really into single stage, and that was pretty much the idea that you know, everything should, uh, any type of transportation should be, you know, like an airplane or a truck or something. You don't stage it. Um, you get one vehicle to go all the way. Yeah. But it's always been a lot technology too far. I mean, the mm-hmm. most recent one, the uh, uh, X-33 that uh, Lockheed tried to build, um, you know, they just gave up on it. Um, so if you launch straight up and straight down, uh, getting the, the upper stage into orbit is really quite easy, uh, and you have enough, um, uh, payload to, mm-hmm. to make the stage heavy enough so you can recover it. You have to have a heat mm-hmm. shield around the whole stage and then, again, do a rocket landing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. I, and by the way, and also with if we have, uh, Professor Greg Odegaard from, uh, the MTU up in Hancock, Michigan, and uh, you, I'm, I think I've got my, my figures wrong, you worked for NASA for four years, am I right? Before yeah, you that's correct. You worked before. Well, what, what role did you play there at NASA when you were working with them? Uh, we did some research on composite materials, so uh, at the time we were trying to uh, help develop the technology. It's It's been around for a few decades, but it's been uh, slowly evolving and improving over time, and so that's what I was working on while I was there, and that's also what I've been working on since I left and came to Michigan Tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that fit in with the launch vehicles? 
Well, um, actually, on Tuesday when the Falcon Heavy went up, the uh, a lot of the rocket structures made out of composite materials, which is. Uh, if if you're not too familiar with composite materials, they're very lightweight. Yep. They're lighter than metal, lighter than aluminum, uh, mm. but with similar uh, stiffness and strength. So, of course, the lighter the structure is of the rocket, the further it can go, or in the, and the less fuel it may have to burn or the greater uh-huh. payload it can bring up. And so mm-hmm. um, that's one of the technologies that uh, SpaceX has been taking advantage of in, in some of their recent achievements, including what we saw on Tuesday. Yes, and matter of fact, uh, you are your institute is called the STRI, the Institute for Ultra Strong, Ultra Strong Composites by Computational Design. That's the project that you're running right now, is Murray? Yeah, that, that's correct. And so the uh, the focus of that is that we're trying to develop the next generation of composite materials. So mm. what we saw in the Falcon Heavy and what we see also in a lot of modern aircraft, like the Boeing 787, those are uh, state-of-the-art composite materials. Uh, however, if we want to be able to get uh, people to Mars, uh, we need something even lighter and stronger than that. And so that's what we've been charged with by NASA is to develop the next generation of uh, super lightweight, uh, strong composite materials. Hey, Greg, this is Richard. Don't they blame the Falcon 9's uh, composite material for the explosion they had on the pad when evidently the, the liquid oxygen froze and somehow uh, combined with the the uh, carbohydrates that were in the in the uh, composite. I can add a little something to that. So, they, in order to pressurize the tanks, they need helium, which they heat up. Uh. But they store it inside a tank inside the liquid oxygen tank, and so uh, to make these tanks uh, strong, they use a graphite uh, uh, composite. Oh, Patrick, uh, Patrick, hang on a second. We're going to take the music behind us okay. and we're coming up to a break. And when we come on the other side, we'll have plenty of time to talk some more about this. I'm anxious to get your perspective on uh, the uh, the battle for Mars. Welcome back. We're uh, talking about, uh, with a group of people who are very familiar with the subject, uh, the whole notion of um, getting into outer space. And we're kind of dissecting the Falcon Super Heavy Lift off this last week and successful landing of the two uh, first stage rockets. Uh, third, the booster apparently, the main booster, didn't do quite as well. It hit the ground at about, uh, or hit the boat, I should say, at about 200 kilometers an hour. In any case, uh, let me reintroduce the people who are with us Richard Steenen in studio, a rocket scientist, we find out as well. <laughs> And uh, then we also have uh, Patrick Steen and his brother, patent lawyer, but also trained uh, in, uh, has a patent on a two-stage launch vehicle and launch trajectory method. And then uh, Professor Greg Odegaard is with us as well from uh, Michigan Technological University. He's a professor of computational mechanics up there, and they're looking into building the new, uh, the next generation of lightweight but very strong composite materials that will be able to take a bigger vessel up into space and to Mars. Uh, Patrick, uh, can you wrap up kind of quickly? You were giving an explanation. Uh, your brother had asked, you know, why was there the explosion of the, uh, sp- uh, was it SpaceX? There's a Falcon 9. About, Falcon 9. About a year ago. Yeah. And you were giving an explanation of that. If you could kind of wrap it up. Okay. So in order to pressurize the tank, they have to, they store the helium within the oxygen tank. And in order to make that tank lighter, they use a metal liner, and then they wrap it with uh, carbon fibers. And when they froze, the, the carbon fibers uh, 
there was a little oxygen got between the metal and the liners, it seems, and then mm-hmm. uh, and then mm-hmm. the oxygen there can combine with the with the carbon, and it did, and and blew up, and so all that gas got got released, and that overpressurized the tank, so the tank burst, and since there's already a little fire going there, everything blew up. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay, now. Let's talk about, gentlemen, I, I want to see if anybody just kind of jump into the conversation, Kasten and Ed as well. Uh, when I was watching the 60s, NASA was the hero. They were the ones that were were getting people on the moon, and it looked like it was all guns ahead, and then suddenly it just kind of dropped off. And now, uh, you know, a period of 30, 40 years later, suddenly, private venture is taking over from this. Where's NASA in all of this now? Well, you know, uh, my own personal opinion, this is Ed, and, you know, you have to remember what was happening in the 80s. We were in the midst of the Cold War. Most of the funding was probably going into the into the military for defense, and they were pulling it away from NASA at that point, and they never really got it back, but that's just my opinion. Hmm. Yeah, and it was, it was kind of the beginning. After we landed on the moon, we just kept going back. You remember yes, all, all yes. of the talk of, it was, to me, it was almost an anti- anti-science time. Um, we don't need to go there. It's just a waste of money. <laughs> and, and frankly, they were spending a lot of money. I mean, just tremendous, tremendous budgets. And everything was so well engineered. There were, you know, triply redundant designs for every single component uh-huh. on the Saturn V. They, and it wasn't until they came to the final design decision that they said, okay, this one works best. We're going to go with it. So they, mm. they really took an amazing approach. Fast forward to now, we've got the internet, we've got uh, um, geospatial uh, imaging of the earth, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Google Earth. We've got all these applications for communication and earth resources that people have to get satellites up there for. Supposedly, SpaceX has a launch manifest that includes 50 launches already booked, and that people are making progress payments on them. You know, I was looking at something, a chart that showed the weight and the thrust of the different vehicles, and the Falcon Heavy, $105 million, right? And the Saturn V was, was it $1.2 billion? It's just incredible numbers for the launches. Yeah, for each launch. That's why you can see Elon thinking, hey... We should reuse those things. It's oh, well, yeah, expensive. Exa- well, exactly. Away. And I think uh, was it uh, uh, Patrick? Were you talking about that uh, being an issue? The uh, the reuse is. I mean, even back earlier days, the whole issue of reusing the stages is a very important one. Yeah, I mean they they were thinking about reuse. Uh, Von Braun uh, thought about it in the Vern, yeah. in the late forties. Uh, mm-hmm. But the problem with reuse is that um, it's tough to do. And uh, you know NASA, uh, we we beat the Russians. That was the that was the big thing. And then yeah, uh, you know they were really uh, Nixon just sort of in '68 they just pulled the funding for you know there was a nuclear rockets. We we're going to go to Mars by '76. Uh, there just wasn't any real call for that. We didn't. Those were sort of contingent that if the Russians beat us to the moon, well we'd have to do the next thing. Um, so, you know, over the last 40 years, there's been numerous attempts to bring down the cost of space yeah. launch. Uh, but um, this time, we have Elon, who is an amazing uh, figure, of course. But he's also been funded right from, almost from the get-go, even before he launched the first time into orbit. Uh, NASA was funding him. Ah. And they did uh, fund 
uh, most of the development of the Falcon um, 9. Um, but, you know, they said he developed the vehicle, which would have cost them $5 billion. He did it for $500 million, and they thought maybe if, if they had used, you know, better contracting parameters, they might have gotten it down to $2.5 billion. So he's really changed the paradigm by showing that you can build, you can do the engineering and build the vehicle. The whole the development cost can be reduced by a factor of 10 uh, but NASA is, you know, heavily involved with uh, both the technology, okay. like the heat shield on the uh, mm-hmm. uh, Dragon capsule, but also in funding these things. And Elon has said that, you know, he's expecting to, uh, you know, they're spending $90 million to launch each astronaut. If, he, if NASA will pay him that to launch the astronauts, that will give him the funding to build, hmm. you know, the big F booster. Yeah, uh, and go to Mars, but uh, yeah. Uh, well, just on, and maybe uh, Professor Odegaard, you could uh, start the comment on this. Well, what do you make of the the race that's going? Apparently, uh, some of what's propelling this thing too is Jeff Bezos from Amazon, who's got a ton of money, is a has a Blue Origin project, and it looks like he's racing, you know, to build the next really big rocket. I forget the name of the rocket, but yeah, the the rocket's called the New Glenn. Um, That's right. And it, yes. it, and it is it's it's beautiful. It's spectacular. It's kind of nice to see images of it on the uh, on their website. Yes, and there's a lot of people who feel that uh, really part of the driving for this for the Falcon Heavy and the launch, and also um, with the pushing of, of the next generation of SpaceX rockets, that that's really being driven by uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, company and their efforts. Um, what one thing I want to kind of add to the the conversation, Ed, Patrick made a very good point that. Um, it's it's kind of easy to forget about NASA in here. You know, back yeah. in the late 60s and early 70s, they did some very high-profile things with, with some of those missions. And, uh, it, you know, we haven't heard a lot of from them as far as high-profile missions over the last few decades. But certainly uh, a lot of that technology used that we see SpaceX using and uh, Blue Origin <laughs> A lot of that technology comes from decades of work at uh, the different NASA centers and, and other companies and government yeah. agencies as well. So uh, that that's really uh, one of the, the important things that NASA is really contributing is is the support that basic research on a lot of that enabling technology. I you know um, I as we were traveling here, um, I think it was Ed was telling me about the um, the Saturn Saturn V was that the name? Yeah, the rocket that went up mm-hmm. that. They ha- they have been trying to go back and find out. In other words, there's been some information lost. I think. Well, I, I remember um, hearing and reading about five eight years ago when this whole SpaceX thing started. That a lot of engineers had to go back to the museums to to look at how the Saturn V and the valves and and things were created. You're nodding your head, Richard. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I read that too. Yep. So then we that. It's incredible to because me when you, that, when you, that technology was lost because that's really this BFR, big friggin' rocket <laughs> that Elon <laughs> is is, uh, is putting up. Um, it could benefit, I would think, so much from the Saturn V rocket. But it, well, they they did uh, take some of them out of storage and fire them. So, uh, oh, okay, they did have tested them recently. But there is this problem, you know, like. Um, uh, United Launch Alliance buys engines from the Russians, and 
at right at the beginning, uh, the Air Force said, you know, we want you to be able to build these. The Russians have to give you the plans. And they, they did give us the plans. Uh, but we're not Russians, so we don't have all the little details. Um, so a very good set of plans, you know, could be done, but there'd be a lot of, you know, um, learning just exactly, you know, and you have to test everything mm-hmm. to make sure that it does what it says. And so it's difficult to go back. I mean, not that they couldn't design a, a redesign the uh, F1 engine or, or you know, re-engineer it. Uh, and they've they've done that with the J2, which was the upper stage engine. Uh, they took those out of storage, and they were looking at using them on the Orion yeah. uh, program. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they spent some money and and came up with a new variant that that uses modern materials, fewer parts, and uh, is is cost. You know, reasonably cost. So, do you, do you think uh, which of the two companies do you think is going to make it to the launch pad? Pat uh, first, uh, the uh, the new Glenn or uh, the BFR? <laughs> <laughs> They're both, you know, using uh, designing and working on testing uh, these stage combustion engines like the Russians. Yeah. Use. And so, a stage combustion engine they burn um, the, all of one of the propellants, but some of the other. So they get hot gas but not too hot and it gives them a lot of power to raise the pressure mm-hmm. and that's very important for first stage engines but they are tricky and they you know like the shuttle main engine was of that type and took years to get uh, great reliability from it um, so I'm thinking they'll probably eventually have their engines. I'm not sure how fast. All right. Gentlemen, I want to thank you. We, we've just kind of scratched the surface on this, but it's been fun. Thanks so much again to Patrick Sneedon for being with us and to Professor Greg Odegaard as well for joining us from the MTU up there. Gentlemen, thank you for being part of the conversation. Richard, of course, you're sticking around in the studio as well. We'll be back in just a minute with Mike Brennan. <laughs> It's that time of the program to welcome Mr. Mike Brennan. <laughs> How you doing, Mike? Down doing in fine. Florida. Thanks, yeah, it's our friend with MI Tech News, Mike Brennan, sitting right next to the captain, Mr. Gary Baker. How you doing, Gary? Hey, I'm doing well. You know, Mike's uh, doing pretty well. We haven't, he hasn't fallen overboard. <laughs> uh, you know. I, I cut my beers off two hours ago, so... Uh... <laughs> I don't see any water wings on you, so you're pretty. You're feeling pretty safe there, huh? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> big boat, very big boat. Tell us, what's your impression of the shared adventure, Mike? Brennan, wow, it's done? big. It's uh, it's like what's a hundred feet long and fifty feet <laughs> wide, right? No, no, that, uh, that it's forty-seven feet long and twenty-four feet wide. Yeah, it's forty-seven long and twenty-five wide. It's oh. a powered catamaran. It's a catamaran, so you've got yeah, two so. sides where you have the, uh, like you have your quarters, where you're at right now, are above that, right, I mean? Uh, yeah, so we're over the, the water uh, in the salon, and then there's two cabins, queen-size beds on each side. Mm-hmm. There are four, four cabins, uh, each with their own bathroom and shower. They're called heads on a boat, so head and shower. And then there's a crew quarters up front, and there's two bunks in that with the crew quarters and with the uh, head and shower, too. So, uh, it, you know, it's, it sleeps quite a few people. Oh, good. Uh, there's, above us is the Sky Bridge, so that's a nice place to hang out and drink coffee in the morning, watch the marina wake up. Oh, I love it. I love it. And were you down there, uh, Mike, uh, for, uh, have you taken a little shared adventure? 
Uh, no, no, we got here just, he got in this morning and we got here this afternoon. So we've just been sharing the adventure here at the war. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike is the editor of uh, MI Tech News, and that's the feature we normally have at this particular time. But I wanted to make sure that we uh, said hello to Gary and uh, share the news of Mike's being down there. Uh, Mike, let's look at some of the headlines that you've got uh, for MI Tech News so people get an idea of what it is that gets delivered on uh, twice a week on Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, I see, oh, big news here is that uh, Tanya Matthews, who is the CEO of the Michigan Science Center, is going to be the keynote speaker. Well, she's going to be the mistress of ceremonies. Mistress ceremony. of ceremonies, yeah. For yeah. The, your IOTech Connect. IOT Tech Connect, right. That's April 4th at the Troy Marriott. We're expecting about a thousand or so folks, maybe thirty to fifty vendors, depending, and then a lot of great content tracks. And what she's going to be doing is leading a workshop for high school students in STEM education to get them uh, all fired up about STEM careers. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully, go on and join the IoT world, right? Excellent, excellent. Yeah, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit more about IoTM with uh, Cast and Thomas in the second hour, uh, which is uh, kind of a new look at. Uh, the medical aspects of uh, the Internet of Things. Uh, another one I see here, and this is really good news also for M-City, uh, is that 42 companies are going to be investing $150,000 $150, each in yeah, over M-City. Over the next three years, right, yeah. Right. Uh, and, and, and Gary asked me that very question. He said, what's the difference between M-City and the American Center for Mobility? And uh, M-City is Michigan, University of Michigan. So it's more the basic research. Will this uh, work? Will it not work? How do we break it? Mm-hmm. Whereas the American Center for Mobility at Willow Run, which is about 10 times as big, will be doing on uh, well vehicle testing on a much bigger track with a much different scenarios. Yeah. Uh, and so that's more of the commercialization side. Yeah, but yeah. the two work hand and glove together. It's interesting. We were talking before about Elon Musk and the impact that the commercial end, if you will, has had on space exploration. That is kind of the same force, I think, that's being exerted by having the Willow Run there next to a great research center. So they're prodding each other, and they get to, you know, see what that research looks like in a practical way. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what really what the big universities do. They do the basic research that then other folks commercialize, uh, because that's not really their university's skill set is to do that, but Right. But they, they they'll, they'll be they'll take bigger risks than say the commercial world where because because they're they're doing the basic research at the university so it all yep. works out. Yep. Okay. What other headline I see here is that uh, Challenge Detroit is recruiting talent to the city for its seventh year. What is Challenge yeah, Detroit? It's a, it's a really in, innovative program. They go after folks uh, outside, young people, very young people, uh, outside of uh, the Detroit area because you know Detroit doesn't always have such a great reputation around the country. So they engage, oh gosh, they have thousands of people apply. I think they end up taking 30 individuals. They pay them a $38,000 annual salary. They're hosted by a company here in, in the Detroit area wow. that, that then takes them on like an intern and maybe later on offers them a job. But more importantly, they then become ambassadors for Detroit saying, hey, yep. I had a wonderful time, lived yep. downtown, did great things, and Oh, yeah, downtown has just been transformed into a great place. That's great to see that's going on for the seventh year in a row. Fantastic. By the way, um, Mike, you and I are going to be sharing a microphone on Monday on your show, M-Squared TechCast. 
Yes, we are. I was gonna. You can talk about your twentieth anniversary. That's right. We can talk bad things about Gary because he's sitting right <laughs> next to me now, so I can't. Um, and then uh, we'll have a good time, and uh, you'll be co-hosting the show. Or show with yep. Matt Roush and I. Oh, that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that. It's coming up on Monday uh, from two until three, right? Yep. All right. Well, that's Mr. Mike uh, Brennan, and he is the editor of MI Tech News, and you can get that delivered to you. Um, twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays, by simply going to mitechnews.com, putting your email address in there, and you're going to have all uh, like the, the headlines we've talked about now and a whole lot more, plus video on uh, Wednesdays. You've got video shots there as well of some yep, of the people yep. that you've been interviewing. And, Absolutely. Uh, great package to be put together. Now, I just qu- quickly, did you, I, I think I asked you this before, do you guys see the uh, the launch of the uh, of the rocket, the heavy rocket. I, I I saw it. I didn't see it live, but I but, watched it several times on replay, and I was particularly intrigued with the booster rockets landing side oh. by side. I'd never seen that before. No, that was the most spectacular. I think for nobody's me, ever seen that. Yeah, before. I don't think so. Yeah, that was the most spectacular <laughs> thing. Uh, I, I think the other guys are nodding their heads as well. It was the, just the the return of those two. Uh, uh, support rockets. But here's a hot tip. If you're in Florida, just step outside. You can usually see a rocket take off. I saw a space shuttle take off from, I was in St. Petersburg, and I was at a television studio, and I was watching the space shuttle launch on their TV screens. They said, oh, you could just step outside and see it. So I did. <laughs> I could see it all the way across the state. It was amazing. Wow. Yep. Well, we're in Fort Lauderdale. It's a bit down the road from Cocoa Beach, though. We're, what, 150 miles or 200 miles? Probably more than that, right? 300 miles? Well, I don't know. In 1982, this is at 1982, I saw the space shuttle go up, and and I was in um, much further north at uh, Daytona Beach. Well, Ah, it was right there. Oh, it was? Daytona Beach is, like, real close. Oh, it is? Say, what do I know? Yeah. So, you guys, <laughs> next time you're in Florida when there's a, a launch, just get in a car and drive up there. Come on. There you go. Well, I, I had the privilege of watching the first launch of the Space Shuttle when I was a cub reporter in 1981. Hey, oh, I was wow. there too, Mike. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. well, we probably bumped into each other. <laughs> yeah, well, there's about 5,000 reporters there that day, so it was uh, like a big uh, you know, rock concert or something. It was great. Gary, yeah. do you did you feel any of the launch? Because they said there were like sonic brooms that went off. Uh, at various times in the launch because of the power of what was going on. You know, I didn't. And I was actually inside in Orlando at one of our clients. Oh. And some people that showed up a little late said they could see it from Orlando. They yep. watched it go up. Sure, you yeah. know, it's a ways away, but you could see it in the sky. Yep. And, wow. Uh, I said, oh, so that's why you weren't here on time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Gary. You were competing. <laughs> You were competing with, uh, yeah, you were competing with the rocket launch. It was a little hard. Well, guys, we're going to take. Oh, don't forget to mention the rocket man now going seventeen thousand miles an hour. Oh yeah, right, right. And you can still see him live streaming. Oh really? Yeah, the camera's right. Now live streaming is incredible. We were talking about that. That that the 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 picture they had there was just incredible. I tell you what, we'll talk a little bit more about this in the second hour as well. But starting off the second hour. Daryl Pitty is coming back. He is the guy who um, works with Christie's. He's a curator of a collection of meteors. And um, we're, we're going to talk about the meteorites that he um, is displaying from Michigan. And he's got some exciting news about that. We'll start the hour off with that. And we can ramble on some more about the launch. And then Cast is going to talk about the Internet of Things Medical. 
You're listening to a podcast of the Internet Advisor Show. To see the show notes for this program, visit our homepage, theinternetadvisor.net. You'll discover past podcasts, our free toolkit with software to clean up your computer and keep it running strong, and many other resources. You'll also find links to MITechnews.com, our co-sponsored weekly tech and entrepreneur newsletter, edited by Mike Brennan. If you have a question for our hosts, just click the contact button on the homepage and send us an email with the details. And don't forget to look for us on Facebook and Twitter. Now, let's get back to the second hour of the Internet Advisor. Thank you for joining us here and uh, listening in on the second hour of the Internet Advisor. I'm Foster Brown, and uh, we got a great studio full of guys here to help with our technical roundtable. Coming up, by the way, though, starting, uh, we're going to be talking with Daryl Pitt about a little piece of heaven that fell to earth and might have ended up being very valuable. (laughs) All that coming up in the second hour of the Internet Advisor. Welcome back. Hour number two of the Internet Advisor. And um, we have a very special guest. It was uh, a couple, was it three weeks ago, I think it was, that we had uh, Daryl Pitt with us. Daryl is somebody who has uh, quite a bit of information about um, meteorites, and as a matter of fact, uh, is a curator, I believe, of a collection of them. I haven't got the darn thing in front of me, I was going to say. But, hey, Daryl, welcome to the Internet Advisor again. Glad to have you back. It's great to join you, gentlemen, again. Thank you. Now, d- give me the, the, the official title. You're a curator of... Um... I'm, I'm the curator of the Makovich Collection of Meteorites, okay. uh, one of the larger private collections in the world. Okay. And then you also consult with Christie's? Uh, I do. Okay. And that is what we want to talk about, is the fact that they've got, um, uh, they actually have an auction coming up, I believe. The, the, the auction's going on right now. Oh, if wow. If you go to Christie's.com and go on their landing page and scroll down, you'll see a picture of, of, of an extraterrestrial object that is indeed a meteorite. <laughs> and it's from Meteor Crater, um, Arizona, and it's a stunningly beautiful meteorite, highly aesthetic, really unusual. You click on that and it delivers you to the entire sale. There's about 44 different um, meteorites that are uh, that are available from sale, that ranging in with price estimates of anywhere from $500 to about $250,000. Now, now, how long does the sale go on? It's not a just an eight-hour thing, is it? It's uh... no, uh, no. Good point. It's it's going on right now, um, and it ends 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday, February 14th. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Isn't that close to Valentine's Day? That is. I, yeah. I, I think it's. That is Matt, right on the uh, head. <laughs> well, you know. Well, you, yeah, I don't you even need remember to get my a wedding meteorite for your sweetheart on Valentine's <laughs> Day. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be quite a gift. Matter of fact, uh, I, unbeknownst to either of us, I was working at our warming center at our church with a young lady who found um, one of the bigger ones. I think it was uh, meteorites. Um, Oh, from this most recent? Yeah, from the most recent In one. Michigan, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the February 16th fireball in, in Michigan. Yeah. yeah, Ashley Moritz is her yes. name. And yes. she is one lucky young woman. And <laughs> the meteorite that she found is uh, on display uh, at Christie's and Rockefeller Center, uh, along with the other 44 meteorites that are uh, available wow. for sale. Wow. And the estimate, because such a small amount of material has thus far been found from the Michigan Fireball. Mm-hmm. The estimate of that material is a bit more than $100 a gram, wow. which is uh, more than twice its weight in gold. 
Wow, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well. Uh, um, uh, I think uh, uh, Richard's with Richard Stinas with us in the studio here. You said you experienced you you yeah yeah we were uh, felt it. we were watching TV and we saw a big flash of light through the shades and I, I even ran outside to make sure there wasn't somebody pulled into our driveway with their high beams on and nothing so we went back inside and then we heard the sonic boom oh yeah which sounded like somebody was you know dancing on our roof and knocking big chunks of snow off and we, we were and freaked our cat out and so we were texting neighbors and they said ah we. You know, check Twitter. There's a meteorite. <laughs> I thought there really was someone dancing on your nope, roof. No, nope. <laughs> way too steep for that. <laughs> so this is exciting. Matter of fact, um, that's very exciting. When um, we were preparing for this uh, conversation with Daryl, um, he said, "Just you know, just go to your browser and uh, put in Christie's dot uh, com," <laughs> which I did. And the problem was, I came up with a very different start page. And what we discovered, guys, was that if you try to find it by going to Christie's.com on Chrome or on Internet Explorer, you don't you get an entirely different page. But if you go to Safari or if you go to Edge, um, Microsoft Edge, Edge, Microsoft Edge, both of them will take you to this wonderful animated screen uh, that you well, know has... not not anymore. Forgive me for interrupting. Oh, really? You, but they they have since changed. The landing page. <laughs> oh, really? It changed. It changed this morning. But if you go to Christie's dot com, yes, you'll you'll see this. You know, you'll be on the Christie's site and just scroll down where it says auctions. Just uh-huh. you know, scroll down like just a little bit, and then you'll see this photo of the meteorite, and you click on it. What um, I got you for your, for your listeners before before what was happening was the Christie's literally had this wonderful animation celebrating oh, yes. this meteorite collection. So the moment you landed on the page, it activated this video loop, which was really extraordinary. And it yeah. shows um, it shows not only Christie's commitment to meteorites, but it also shows be, more importantly than, than even that, and that's important. That's a really important benchmark. What it also shows is how meteorites are permeating the uh, pop consciousness mm-hmm. of uh, of of the world as a collectible, and right if there's any collectible that that one should grab now, I would suggest that it be a meteorite because mm-hmm. in a few years, so many of these objects are going to be selling for so much more than they're currently selling for. Mm-hmm. The demand is going to far, far, far outstrip the supply, and that's when uh, the value of these objects goes up. So, so Daryl, I have a question. So if a Tesla was to enter Earth's orbit and crash <laughs> to the Earth, would that be a meteorite? <laughs> um, actually, actually, no. It, it's not, because it's a man-made object to begin with. And that Tesla's going to burn up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not going to make it back uh, to Earth, so we don't have to, to worry about that or whoever it is that's in the trunk of the car. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to catch the imagination of our listeners. Yes. No, well done. Well, I'm going I'm to try. I'm, let me take a swing at it. At the Christie's auction. If, if people go to, to the Christie's.com website and check a look at, take a look at the sale, you have specimens of the moon, literally from chunks of the moon, specimens oh, from the yes. planet Mars. We know they're from Mars because they contain uh, tiny bubbles that contain uh, volumes, small volumes of Martian atmosphere, which wow. we know is Martian atmosphere from the, the NASA Viking project which sent a probe to Mars, so we tested and sampled the Martian atmosphere. Uh, there's also isotopic indicators that we know that it's also from Mars, but that's uh, the atmospheric capture is the smoking gun. There's, um, there's meteorites from the largest meteorite shower since the dawn of civilization, some 
beautiful, beautiful iron meteorites from Siberia. Uh, there are meteorites that contain extraterrestrial gemstones, and that's the one oh. for Valentine's Day. That's the one for your sweetie. Um, extraterrestrial peridot. And it is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And this variety of meteorite, which is referred to as a palisite, um, is is actually the most beautiful extra it, it is. If you go and you go to the page, which is on Christie's.com, click on the meteorite and you'll see some of the beautiful things that, that are on, on sale there. Daryl, thanks so much for coming back and sharing that with us. Daryl Pitt, and we will be back in just a moment with our conversation going to Ed's help calls and also Kasten Thomas. I wanted to uh, let people know that this second hour of the Internet Advisor, when we are um, preempted, uh, as we have been by Michigan State University basketball uh, this past Saturday, uh, what I do like to do, because we don't have access to your phone calls, which we love getting, and are really what this whole second hour was about, is that uh, we do a tech roundtable with a bunch of people who are in studio here. And that includes a band who's playing a role as an engineer as well as... Uh, a member of that roundtable, Ed Riddell. Good uh, to have you here. Always great to be here. Matter of fact, we'll have you talk about a help call uh, from an old friend of ours that you handled. Kasten Thomas is with us as well. The Glad Chuck Norris here. of security. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> Chuck Norris of security. <laughs> I love it. He's with us. But he's also with us and now as a regular member of our uh, uh, tech roundtable. I'm glad to have you here as well. Thanks. Uh, and you'll be leading the discussion on... Um, I-O-M-T, I have been corrected, the Internet of Medical Things, right? Yep, there's an acronym for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get the alphabet soup spelled correctly. Also with us is an old friend of ours, uh, normally talking about Internet security with him, but today uh, we tapped his resource as a rocket scientist. Rich Steenen, good to have you here. Good to be talking about something I know something about. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of guessing at, or no, I'm just <laughs> trying to ferret out security. Mm. Holy cow. Well, the nice thing about security is if you're wrong, just wait a little while and it'll change. It's like Michigan weather. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, uh, I, I, we normally say we'll take help calls when we're live this time, but uh, we also will take your, uh, if you send us a, an email with your question especially for those of you who are listening to us on our affiliates throughout the state. Uh, that's the way to get your question to us. Send us an email. Uh, you can go to our uh, website, internetadvisor.net, and then you would simply uh, click on uh, the Contact Us button, put your email address in there, and your question. And we will get back to you during the week and then also on the program. And that's what happened with a... Uh, an email we got from an old friend of ours, uh, Ben Carpenter. Oh, yeah. Gentleman farmer. Mm -hmm. And uh, he writes us quite succinct and detailed messages. And he's very good at diagnosing and troubleshooting himself. He is. He's and incredible. He's in his, he's in his uh, early 80s. And he is. He, he's an incredible. He's a tinkerer. He is. He is. And I think, if I remember, wasn't he into steam engines, Yes, too? steam engines as well, the steampunk stuff. But yeah. he, he did upgrade all of his computers at home, or, or at least four of them that he admits, to Windows 10. <laughs> um, and he keeps some online and some offline, of course, because mm. he, he feels that he needs to keep some offline. But he was having difficulties with one because it just doesn't, the volume on it. Uh, coming through his speaker systems, and he has a nice set of Bose speakers, just does not come out as loudly as if he uh, some of his other systems. Hmm. And this has always plagued Windows operating systems because you have so many different um, pieces of software that can control the speakers. 
Uh-huh. Some of them don't play by the rules, and Microsoft really never has created a, a master uh, volume control that will override all that stuff. So, uh-huh. um, but, what, but what one of the things you can do is you can go into, with Windows 7 and Windows XP was the, no, Windows 7, you could do this. You could uh, go into the search and type in volume mixer, and Microsoft will bring up a control panel entry that allow you to have master volume control, web browser volume control, oh, yes, and stuff like that. Yeah. So what he was complaining about is that appeared to be gone in Windows 10. So I asked him to try it again uh, in Windows 10, and he brought up misinterpreting my email types text. You know how that is. You mm-hmm. think you can include next text. He brought up the file explorer and typed in volume mixer. Uh-huh. And what he was actually looking for was a... When you do that, you're looking for a file name called file or right, a volume right, mixer. Right, right. Instead of using Cortana or the Windows search feature to look for it so you could find the control panel ah. entry. So I, I sent him a, a more detailed instructions that said use the Cortana in Windows 10 to search and search for volume control. Um, but you may want to also try uninstalling Java and reinstalling it or Adobe Flash Player because sometimes those control panel entries become disabled. You know, mm. it really depends on what what he's what volume is missing. Is it when he's mm-hmm. on YouTube? Is he when watching? Uh, is it the commercials that that nag you when you you know <laughs> that you, you're trying to read an article and all of a sudden a commercial yep. on a web page yep. starts blaring at you? Or is, yeah. Does he really miss those? I mean, so. <laughs> or most importantly, what's happening when he's listening to the Internet Advisor? There you go. <laughs> there you go. So bring up that volume control and and you know what my initial email to him was to. Go into everything you could fathom that has a volume control, you know, CD, music player, right. you know, and YouTube, and just crank all the volume up. And he couldn't do that. Uh, he couldn't identify what components. So then we tried the volume mixer, and then now it's to the point where uninstall Adobe and Java and try reinstalling them so that the Internet Explorer or the Microsoft Edge or the Mozilla or whatever add-ins to your browser can be repaired. Mm, okay. So And that, that's where we left it. I haven't heard back yet from them. So. All right. All right. So that, but, so it is a it is a stepping it is a process. It's I mean Microsoft still doesn't have a handle on master volume control. So you would you would go to that little box on the bottom left hand side. You're saying yeah, where, where the Cortana, you know, where they have the little speaker and it says right. Cortana. Could you bring up my volume mixer? You know, or you could type it in. How does it work? Does that work well when you speak to Cortana? That no, way? not as yeah. well as my Google Voice or yeah, exactly, or, or my I, iPhone. Yeah, well, and yeah, Siri, even Siri, I find, is not as effective as uh, the Google uh, search. I find that the, uh, the, audio, the, the, I don't know if you guys have found that, that the Google search is so much better when you, when you talk to it. I don't know. Richard, yeah. how about you? <clears throat> I never talk to my computer. <laughs> really, I just, I don't. I'm just not, I'm so old. I don't know often. I don't know often either. No, no, neither do I. Not really. But you know what I do like? I like touching my computer. I like the ability to bring up a website. Yes. And while it's still loading ads, I can just swipe up. And, you know, a lot of times you have no mouse control until the ads have finished loading. That just yeah. bugs the heck out of me. Yeah. And But if I, I can touch the screen with my, you know, Windows 10 and touch huh. screen, and I can, you know, get through it no problem. That happens with Google Chrome. It happens with my Opera. It happens with Edge. All of them. Until the ads load, I, can, I have no control to wow. scroll down past the ads so that I can start reading my news article. Huh. Now, I haven't faced that. I guess I have an ad blocker. 
Oh, yeah, they had Block Plus. Yeah, and besides, you're on a Mac, which doesn't have yeah. that issue. You got a touchpad. You just scroll. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. Although I would like Sorry, to be I able to, to get that in there. <laughs> well, no, I, I, even with my touchpad, I won't let me do it. Huh. And when I swipe the right-hand side, it still doesn't well, let me do it. Don't have that issue with I Mac. wish. I wish with, the, with my <laughs> Mac. <laughs> that's true. No, yeah. it's, I bet. Mm-hmm. With my MacBook, I wish I had uh, the ability to hit the screen. Who's somebody? Somebody got audio on your. Uh, oh my goodness! My computer was talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> Siri woke up. Oh, my goodness. I got to tell you guys. Uh, you were talking bad about her. Yeah, no, kind of quickly. Um, I am. I just. Oh, it was my phone on my wrist oh, that was hearing me. Your iWatch. My iWatch. No, it's, Apple doesn't call it an iWatch. They call it an Apple Watch. An oh, Apple Watch. You, otherwise, you'd be like uh, Dustin Hoffman is I like to watch. That's right. right? <laughs> Isn't that something? Wasn't that? Doesn't he play Gardner that says I like to watch? <laughs> it was Chauncey. Oh no, that wasn't him. That was the guy that played the yeah, it was, um, the Pink Panther. Yeah, me, the Pink Panther guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like to watch. Yeah. And that- anyway, I was going to say, guys, <laughs> this watch has been fantastic. I'm still learning. I last, you know, the last program, the guys gave me uh, the Apple Apple Watch Three. It has been fantastic. I'm still learning all the stuff. But one of the things I'm having a, a fun with is uh, talking on the phone because uh, I was uh, in the other room and I had left my phone charging and i was in the other room a phone call came through and i just hit the watch and answered the phone and had a long conversation i think i may have talked with you cool. uh richard when you were coming in oh, okay i used the, f- the phone to, to uh, talk with you what did the was the art was the audio good yeah it's perfect incredible Amazing. just Pe- incredible peter sellers peter, peter sellers. sellers that's it all right hey we're gonna take a quick break when we come back i, I want to give a little bit of a platform here to Caston to talk about Something brand new that's coming uh, is being developed as the IOMT, the Internet of Medical Things. Have I it's got that right? It's not coming. It's already it's here. It's here. All right. We're going to talk about that and uh, the consequences to us for that kind of thing. All right. All that coming back up with the Internet Advisor. And this is our tech roundtable throughout the rest of this hour. I want to thank uh, Ed Riddell, my old posse member here, who is also doing the engineering of our program, doing a great job on that. Thanks, Ed. And I'd uh, like to say any time, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Richard Steenitz here, kind of wearing a number of hats, and uh, good to have you on board. Good to be here. part of this tech roundtable. Yeah. But the man of the hour right now is Caston Thomas, who's with us, also a security expert, has uh, his own company. Um, Interworks. Interworks out of Rochester. And uh, you uh, are a consultant there on security with some of the large organizations out there of putting together, I've heard you describe it, kind of putting together packages of resources for them. We find all the new stuff. Yep. The really <laughs> advanced, you know, the machine learning, artificial intelligence, internet of things, security, and mm-hmm. uh you know, the technologies evolved to where you can make the information security professionals 10, 20, 30 times more effective using these tools. So uh, we're out there scouring the horizon for what's coming next. Mm, so, excellent. Uh, I tell people that we've institutionalized and built a process around, look, squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's interesting having the two of you in the studio as well, because Rich, of course, You've been looking at cybersecurity for a long time uh, on a macro level. And uh, we make bring bring that in. But I want to talk about this. It's the, the new catchphrase is IoT. 
the Internet of Things. And matter of fact, Mike Brennan, back in, on April the 4th, he is going to be uh, having an entire uh, conference that they're holding on that and uh, at the Marriott in, in Troy. But um, what's the deal with IoT? Let's start with that and then go into IOMT and how that fits into the whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's the convergence of a number of technologies. I mean, we look at sensors and the ability to be able to monitor things no matter where they are. A good example of medical technology would be uh, a sensor that would be able to monitor glucose levels in the bloodstream to help diabetics uh, monitor and adjust their medication uh, better. It has the ability to remotely be able to provide telemetry information and other kinds of things to physicians and potentially artificial intelligence systems who can monitor and give feedback to behavioral controls. So a good example would be, uh, let's say you've got bilateral stress on a, a knee implant and you might indicate that there's going to be either failure in that knee implant or maybe the bone tissue around it. So having sensors that could monitor that and talk to the iWatch or plug into the computer or Bluetooth to be able to update that data into a database that can then be monitored or send an alert to a physician or to the patient to say, you know, you, you really need to get in and see the physician in the next couple of days. This is going like wildfire, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Just going going bananas. But on that same level, I'm, I know that the hospitals, like I, I happen to go to a hospital that's um, St. John, uh, which is now part of uh, St. John Providence, now part of Ascension. And they are just, it, se- it seems like every time I go in there, and I go on, fr- unfortunately, frequently, um, you know, for checkups or whatever, there's new stuff that they've got going, you know. And uh, the nurse now walks in with a laptop. She Absolutely. has a laptop, and she does all of her entry in there, my blood pressure, et cetera, temperature, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that's immediately scored. My my blood test results are immediately, boom, right there. I can ask for them when I leave. I get them. And as a matter of fact, I've now found that I can go online right. with uh, some of the uh, uh, the um, the portals that they have. Sure. Well, yeah. you know, that's all great, but I'm still waiting for the day where I can, you know, carry it with me. Right. So if there's an emergency, I have my medical information with me that shows that I saw the doctor regularly. This is the blood pressure. This is the medication I'm on. And, well, with the watch that you have, well, we're getting to that point. Yes. Yep. But, you know. But there's no portability yet. There's no portability. What the Health Information Portability Act was all about, and we're not there yet. Yeah. Well, I, I think with this uh, Apple Watch, I am. I mean, it's got sensors in the bottom of it that I can go to that if I press the button, this little heart, this heart rate, it starts measuring it immediately. Now, apparently, there is also an application on my phone. It's called uh, Health uh, that I can go to. That's the Apple Health app. Yep. And and that's not so much an app as it is. It's kind of like Apple Home or or the Google Home platform where everything communicates to it. So. Apple Health or the Google Health equivalent on the Android devices, 
gives you the ability to take the sleep monitor that you have. There are pillows mm -hmm. and mattresses, and uh, you can even put your phone on your bed, and it will detect what's going on. With your Apple Watch, it can look at your pulse and those other things right. and feed all that in. So they've built a platform where all of the data is in one place, and they've built that interchange of information so that you can take all the inputs and put it into Apple Health. And there are extensions that Apple's working with, uh, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, probably uh, Detroit Medical Center in mm -hmm. Beaumont, uh, Stanford Health. They're all getting behind this collaborative effort in order to extend the capabilities of Apple Health into more medical record kinds of yeah, data. Yeah, because I have, matter of fact, one of the entries here, I think, is medical, it's called medical ID and I, cr I can create my own ethical ID. That, Ed, I it's sort of like what I was saying. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I haven't done it yet because I'm still trying to find all this stuff that's on here. But that's on my phone. And, uh, you know, typical of Apple, it's all in the Apple walled garden. And as a matter of fact, they're being criticized for not opening it up to third parties. You think, it might, you think that might be eventually this uh, medical field might be the thing that, that cracks that open? Yeah, it could be. And, and why wouldn't they open it up just like they did with the App Store for yeah. apps? So. Yeah. As long as you comply with their requirements, right? Yeah. The, the one thing that I'm that I'm I'm just surprised that they took the plunge is the, um, you know, if they're monitoring all this stuff, aren't they afraid of getting sued? <laughs> you know, especially if they lose it, that's a hit. Yeah, well, they lose the thing, or what about? I wasn't notified that my blood pressure was too high. You know, and then the guy, some person has a heart attack. What about the liabilities? I, I Well, think? the Apple acceptable use uh, agreement <laughs> uh, on uh, your uh, iPhone is 92 pages. I bet they thought of that. Yeah, I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. <laughs> well, but no, you're raising a very interesting point and the security. So tell me, what do you think of security? Well, it's not just a security thing. I mean, it, wouldn't it be great to carry our medical record around with us? Yes. But, you know, there are two issues. There's the security aspect, but more importantly, there's the issue of trust. If a physician gets on the information on your phone, is it accurate? Is it up to date? Mm. Have you, you know, you might be saying I'm taking all my medication and that's being recorded in the watch or the phone, but how accurate is that? So, yeah. yeah, it's not just security. It's that level of is the information in that medical record you're carrying around accurate? Mm. Well, but it's a starting point. Absolutely. I mean, when, when my kids were young, I used to carry um, uh, a thing, of, of all things, on my Palm Pilot that showed every medical visit, what the doctor said, and the prescriptions they provided. Oh, wow. And, How old are you? Uh, I know. <laughs> I know. And the doctors were like... I don't even have this information, you know, and I says, that's because, you know, that's because your medical record system is so messed oh, yeah. up. And, and we were talking, we were in the same office and they're like, I can't find these entries. I said, here's the date. Here's the time. Here's the prescription. Here's the doctor's wow. name. And they, oh, I can't find that. My son's had strep throat four times this year. What are you going to do about it? I don't show that. You know, it was oh, just my. ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It, and again, this was in the nineties mm -hmm. and the nineties mm -hmm. and 2000s, but still. Come on. Yeah. And, and you were asking about security, and we've talked about the the wearable devices and the remote devices, but there's a huge issue around medical devices in hospitals. That could be oh. MRIs, infusion pumps, uh, the other kinds of uh, telemetry monitoring things. Within the hospital itself. Huh? Yeah. And, and that's a great concern. 
there are two concerns there. One, securing those devices because conceivably uh, a malicious hacker could take that same approach with ransomware and hold infusion oh, yeah. pumps or oh my gosh. Uh, refrigeration units because there are very strict FDA compliance regulations on monitoring the temperature that drugs are kept in those refrigerators. And if you lose that information or for some reason the network goes down and you're not able to monitor that, the hospital has to dispose of those drugs. Whoa! Uh, there's another thing in the the nurse alarms because it, the hospitals have to make quadruply sure that if a nurse alarm goes off, you know, you hear the code blues or those mm -hmm. kinds of things in a hospital. If an alarm goes off on one of these monitoring devices, someone needs to respond. <laughs> yes. And, and and as anybody who, who I've carries been on a the phone other <laughs> I recently spent three weeks in a hospital, um, and, and at night in particular. <laughs> in well, what happens if the network goes down? You know? Oh, yep, exactly. And the alarm goes off. There's nobody there to hear it because oh. the network doesn't transfer. Yeah, the tree falls in the forest. You know. All right. We're going to come back. Cass and Thomas, Richard Steenan, Ed Rudella, myself, Foster Brown. We're going to be talking more about this IOMT, the Internet of Medical Things. Kind of mind-blowing all the things that this entails. Back to that in just a minute here on the Internet Advisor. Well, I got to ask my, my crew here, have you got your plans set for Valentine's Day? I think we're babysitting for somebody else. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's yeah, good. That's good. That's thing. very good, yeah. Ed, how about you? Any... Uh... I, I guess I'm not very romantic. Oh, Kasdan? So I did ask my wife, where do, what do we want to do for Valentine's Day? Oh, yeah, at least you asked that and, question. And wink, wink, she said... Food's not important to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> oh, dear. Maybe the diamonds are a girl's best friend. I don't know. <laughs> you may or be meteorites. Or meteorites. Those sound pretty good. My <laughs> girl is my best friend. All right. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I too, I, you know, I've just looked at the count. Oh, the 14th. Hmm, what are we going to do? <sighs> you know, we might go out to dinner, but I think one of the things we're going to be doing is the following month, it'll be our 25th. <gasps> wedding anniversary that's right and you're gonna be going to uh we're gonna to go to los, los angeles, angeles and then right? lost wages yeah yeah and then lost wages gonna visit my son he's out there doing an internship and and uh yeah and, and he called us a couple days ago he said it was 85 degrees and he was sweating so much i just felt so sorry for him. <laughs> wow, horrible. i'm out of it what is lost wages Lost Vegas. Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Ah, <laughs> uh, got it. Okay. Otherwise known as Lost Wages. I've never heard that. Oh, no. Well, that's a tease that's been out there for a long time. Okay, I guys. I in a bubble. <laughs> uh, both, both of you, Kasten and, and uh, maybe from different perspectives, uh, Richard, um, it seems almost as if technology in this particular instance has gotten way ahead of the ability to hang on to its tail and keep it safe. Am I right on that? Yeah, completely. I've, I've actually written about this a lot because a lot of people are saying, oh, these silly people producing all these new products have to build in security from the beginning, which is great, except that that slows down the development and, yep. and it costs, costs a lot more. And why should you worry about the security of something when you don't even know if people are going to buy it? Right, So what happens is you build the new watch or the new light bulb or whatever, and you make a million of them, you sell a million of them, and then the hackers start having fun with it. And then you have to recall them all or somehow fix them. And crowdfunding just makes that all the worse. Yeah, crowdfunding is creating things constantly. Oh, well, well how's that? No, no, tell me about that. 
Well, these are companies that come up with an innovative idea. They publish it to the internet to a crowdfunding site. Ah, and Kickstarter. It's it's like yep. micro investing. A person can buy one of these objects for you know a development cost. Or there are places where now you can actually get stock ownership into an upstart. So with wow. that happening, people are putting money into these ventures without the oversight and without the risk assessment that's typically done for a company that is uh. going after professional develop or professional uh, uh, investors. Right, yep. right. So that's how it, it's complicated things even more. Um, in that sense, to me, I, I just got used to the idea, and we're just going to live with it. And it just yeah, creates yeah. more business for Caston and I. So. <laughs> well, you know, I'll, I'll take a counterpoint to Richard because, from my perspective, securing the Internet of Things is going to be easier because when you look at the security problems we've had, the overwhelming majority—I mean, we're talking ninety, ninety-five percent of the the big hacks that have happened and even the intermediate hacks has been because of user error because somebody opened up the wrong email right because uh, a system wasn't patched by an administrator or somebody shared their passwords where they shouldn't. With the Internet of Things, you remove that human fallibility that has created so many hacks. So Mm. it gives us the ability not necessarily to depend on the devices securing themselves, but being able to secure the networks around it. And using machine learning, you can monitor the networks and look for abnormal behavior and identify that very quickly. So that's my counterpoint, Richard. And I, You just wish I would disagree, but I can't. <laughs> well, you know, how many times has your smart TV actually said, I have to do an update? Mine's done uh, it three times in the last year and a half since I've owned it. Hmm. I don't I, yeah. even know when mine gets updated. I just turn it on and yeah. things look different. No, I, I yeah, mean, I have a Samsung too. and it basically says, you know, you have, there's an update. Would you like to do it now or, or, or wait till you go to bed and schedule a time? Hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Do that. I'm just wondering if my fire alarms are going to do that and my light bulbs and yes. <laughs> at some point. <laughs> they already <laughs> are. Oh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. And don't, but, for, don't forget the other IOMT, the one that I wrote a book on, right? So the Internet of military things. Oh. These are things that are 20 years old and were never developed with the idea that somebody could attack them. And they're everywhere. Oh, my goodness, yes, you're yeah. right. So and we had the same problem weapons. in the electrical grid. Yeah. But the smart meters are coming out and those are being secured because security as smart meters came out was built into those devices and mm. now there's some exciting things happening on the network side to prevent people from being able to get even to be able to even see those uh those uh smart meters well you don't as i listen to you now as kind of a layperson, maybe from the perspective of most of our listeners um I, you don't realize all the holes that have been opened up around you <laughs> for the different vectors for attacks, if you will. Um, yeah, and the traditional model is to let the attackers point them out to you, right? So <laughs> you don't find true. out until after the vulnerability is exploited. Right. Yeah. And, and this is a big concern also, not only for medical devices, but we're going with smart cars, mm-hmm. you know? And so the yes. automotive industry has to, is seriously looking at that. They have cybersecurity experts and automotive cybersecurity experts. Just for that reason. Yeah. What, what about drones and delivery and, drones? Oh, yes. they're Lord, flying Lord yes. Yeah. We saw those cool drones at the Olympics 
Um, oh, 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 when they get yeah, I mean the ones where they have a display like Intel had. Yeah, they they flew up and they formed the uh, yes. like circles. Oh, and and yeah. an eagle, I believe, or some yeah. sort of phoenix, probably. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That is astounding. I, yeah, Remarkable. and these are all tiny little. They have LEDs on them, right? Yep. And they're all individually programmed, they're choreographed. Right. Um, that that is also uh, being used by the military. Am I right? In terms of uh, both uh, surveillance and the possibility of attack as well. Swarming, and we saw the first uh, drone swarm attack on a Russian base in Syria. So from thirty kilometers really? away. The I, don't, I forget if it was ISIS or the Kurds or somebody flew all these drones that they had made, which were like air- airplanes with electric uh, motors on them and fans, and they had all these these uh, bombs on them, and they hit the airplanes. Wow! So that's first use, and it was all cobbled together. Yeah. From uh, how so how large were the drones? Were they so they had about a two and a half foot wingspan? Wow! So, yeah. so almost something you a consumer size. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. It, it sounds and, like it. Yeah. And they had made them themselves. Probably got see. them off eBay. No, <laughs> they weren't even off the shelf. They they, they just cobbled them, them together. Cobbled them together. Strapped some motors seven up on bottles them. and yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, my son has a three D printer. Yeah. And the manufacturing facility in Eastern Europe that built it. Their 3D printers are printing the 3D printers. And my son said that he can actually upgrade and build a new 3D printer to replace the one that he has (gasps) that's being 3D printed by the printer he owns. Oh, my God. That's cool. Oh, Oh, that sounds like like a hall of mirrors. This is the world we live in. That's Terminator stuff. Oh, (laughs) my goodness. Well, you know, how far are we away from some of the things I know Skynet and things like that. You begin to wonder. Oh boy! Oh, we're already there. <laughs> I think I need my. T- I think I'm going to get a tin hat. All right, we'll have to get one that will have an Internet Advisor logo on it or something like that. Just make sure it's connected to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, with uh, I, you know, we're going to have to look into this 5G coming up, and and that's going to be an interesting topic to uh, to get into as well. Well, guys, this has been a ball. I really enjoy these tech roundtables, and uh, it's kind of freewheeling conversations, which everybody gets to join in. Ed, thanks so much for doing a great job of engineering of this uh, whole program. And for you folks out there who have uh, tuned into this podcast, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And if you'd like to subscribe to it on a regular basis, go to internetadvisor.net. And uh, you'll find a way there with the, with the podcast of uh, Lincoln Inn. You can find us on iTunes. You can find the podcast uh, usually by Monday uh, posted on our website. And, guys, I want to thank you again, Rich, for being here. Kasten, Ed, and for all the other guests who have been here, thank you so much. Thank you.